You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Well, first and foremost, it has been a privilege and an honor to be able to walk the students of Stonegate Church through the gospel through, uh, through Wake Weekend. Um, and I think, amen, like they deserve a round of applause, man. They came and they held it down. I think one of the greatest follow-ups to a weekend encounter like this is for them to go back to homes where there's a sensitivity to the Spirit's work in their lives. And so I think that the gospel is the neutralizing ground for that. So as we work through the text today, that's something I want us to think in the forefront of our minds is how can we continue the momentum that God is beginning to stir up in the hearts of the young people. I really want to see a generation that's raised up that finds a balance in proclaiming the salvific atonement of Jesus while engaging tangible expressions of God's grace socially while they're in action to show people the gospel is the message that we proclaim not just with our lips but also with our lives to show them that God is alive and active active in our society today. The world needs to see the church, and they need to see a multi-ethnic church and a multi-generational church because that's the snapshot of heaven. Now, I'm getting full of myself. That's what we're going to cover. But before I dig into the text, I also got to give a shout out to, to my love, mi corazón, my wife, Elicia. It is by her grace that we're here. Today is her birthday, so I want to give a shout out to my baby. I appreciate you. Please know that This is not a one-sided ministry. Uh, They say, you know, behind every good man is a great woman. Alongside me is my wife. Uh, She is not behind me. She rides with me every step. And sometimes I try to run in front of her, and by God's grace, she pulls me by the collar and says, get back here, boy. We on this thing together. So I praise God for my wife, and I appreciate you, baby. So I think um, that introduction is a segue into a conviction that I bear in my soul is that every Christian is a missionary, and literally every piece of ground that we walk on is our mission field. I don't want us to think that the mission field is just across the sea. It's actually across the street. I like what Dr. John Piper says, where he says, the reason, the reason missions exists is because of the very aspect that there are people who don't worship God. And that should be a burden in our heart, because some of us lives in homes where people don't know God. We go to school, we go to work, we live in community with people who don't know God. And so the mission field is in front of our face. The mission field is before our eyes. The mission field is everywhere where people don't know God. And the gospel that we're called to proclaim is not one just of proclamation verbally, but one of demonstration to show the non-believing world that our God exists. And God is calling his people of his own possession to mobilize into the spheres of influence in society to be his voice and leave his fingerprints in the cultural landscape of our day. I think we often get distracted from living that out when we forget our identity. And I believe this text that we just read focuses our identity on Christ. And when we focus our identity on Christ, it keeps us from dismissing, discounting, and becoming discontent with our calling to live a life on mission. Now, let me run it back one more again because I'm a Baptist preacher and them are my three points. Dismissing, discounting, and becoming discontent with our calling to live a life on mission. So let me first open up with dismissing our calling. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he opens up by saying, but you are a chosen race. And I want to start with those first two words, but you. 
Peter starts off by giving a contrast of two different people groups. The first people group is obvious, what we call the mass of perdition, those who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And then the other people group are all of those who have heard the gospel and they put their trust in Jesus Christ. But here's the reality. We as Christians must be very sympathetic and empathetic to the non-believing world, regardless of their faith, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of where they are educationally, how much money they have affluence, or how much poverty they're oppressed by. We must be sympathetic to them because we were once in that category. You see, the reality of our first father, Adam, tells us that every single human being that is alive, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of gender, regardless of employment, we were all born dead in sin because we have inherited a sin nature from our first father, Adam. So universally, the entire human race is born into this first group of people who are separated from a holy and righteous God, not because of ethnicity, not because of social class, but because of sin. Psalm 51.5, David says that while he was conceived in his mother's womb, sin was already there. Psalm 58.3 tells us that the, from the womb, the wicked come forth speaking lies. That means every single one of our native language is lying. Nobody had to teach you how to be a sinner. You were naturally born a sinner. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1, 2, and 3 says that we are spiritually dead, separated from God, and we are under the dominance of this worldly system that fosters brokenness, affliction, and oppression. That is the natural rhythm of our lives. There is brokenness. There is pain. There are people crying out for help, and they are searching from idol to idol to idol to try to find alleviation from their affliction. That is where we all once were. But God, who was rich in mercy, sought us out, and he delved into the lower depths of this broken system called the humanity world system. And he lived the perfect life that we could never live. And he died a substitutionary death that none of us could ever die. He literally became a sponge, if you will, on the cross, and God the Father poured the wrath that was due for the entirety of the human race on Jesus, and he absorbed it down to the last drop. And when he knew that all the work that was needed to be done was completed, he cried out in victory, it is finished, it has been brought to completion, meaning nothing can be added and nothing can be taken away. Then he was literally buried, and three days later, he rose victorious from the grave so that he could draw to himself from every nation, tribe, and tongue, every gender, every social class, every victim of every form of oppression to him to find salvation through him alone and then be given a new identity to go out and be the marketing campaign of this gospel that directs the rhythm of our lives. So that's why we're sympathetic to the non-believing world is because they don't know the affection of our God and we do. And who better to go and engage with them, not just online, but in our place of work, when we're going and when we're coming back home, everywhere we go, we are the billboard for our God and his glorious gospel that is to be proclaimed and demonstrated. So when he says, but you recognize my Christian brothers and sisters, he's talking to us. 
And he's recalibrating our identity to be that which we now walk in confidence of. He says that five things. One, we are a chosen race. And the way that this is phrased, it is the one who was doing the choosing that they had for their own pleasure, the way of selection in which they chose. And the reality of this term called race expresses the fact that no matter our physical ethnicity, no matter our gender, no matter where we were born or what scars we have on our heart from our broken mistakes, God is starting to gather to himself a people who are one spiritual ethnicity. And as he gathers them together, we are to show our, our uniqueness and our connection to God as we engage not only with the non-believing world, but with each other in the body of Christ. See, what we've got to recognize is that every local church should be a snapshot of the brochure of heaven. We should be what the world looks at as the appetizer for the city of God even though we live in the city of man that is broken. You know, when you have that queso blanco, when you've got the mozzarella sticks, that chips and salsa, however you get down with barbecue brisket here in Texas, all those appetizers are a foretaste of what is yet to come. So the things that our God is passionate about, we equally must be passionate about. Freedom from affliction, freedom from oppression, from not just spiritual and sinful, but the physical mechanisms that are broken in our society that God is calling us to go and represent him tangibly and visibly before the non-believing world. We're a chosen race, which means no one ethnicity has a monopoly on the gospel. Equally, all of us were drawn to the cross to receive salvation. Our identity is not centered on man-made structures. It's rooted in Christ, but that doesn't dissolve the realities of our individual distinction. When I became a believer in Christ, being from Mexican and Native American and a little bit of Caucasian heritage, that didn't go away when I became Jesus Christ. That remained. And as much as I did not become our gender, my masculinity did not go away when I embraced Christ as Savior. And at the same time, when I embraced Christ as Lord, my family didn't get elevated three tax brackets where I didn't need employment anymore. So the reality of those distinctions, we shouldn't just wash away and act like we don't see the distinctions because we're marching towards a city that is multi-ethnic and multi-generational. And if we're to be a snapshot in a brochure of heaven, the world needs to see the nations, tribes, and tongues now gathered, giving glory to God on this side of eternity. The humanistic philosophies that try to answer the broken systems of the world will always fail. But the heart of God that deals with a perfect balance of the spiritual affliction and the social affliction should be proclaimed by those who know him equally. So the reality is we need to learn how to communicate with the non-believing world. As God has called us cross-culturally, we need to do some studying to recognize how can we communicate the message of God in a way that the non-believer can understand and appreciate. And I'll give you one example. I was born in the hood, I was raised in the trap, which is hood lingo for basically say, I lived in that part of town, you wanna drive around, not drive through. And somehow in God's grace in my early 20s, I was given an entry-level position for a corporation that worked downtown in the city I was raised in. So this was my introduction to corporate America. The language they spoke was not the language we spoke on the street. And the reality of me wanting to share my life and, and, and the gospel and, and my convictions of a lifestyle was something that I had to learn. It was almost like playing double dutch. When they got two different ropes going, you got to find a rhythm before you jump in. So I had to find the rhythm of the office environment, and it took me a while. 
But I learned that when they would offer me drinks or, hey, let's go to the club, and I'd be like, nah, I'm cool. I don't want to do that. And they would ask me, oh, why? And I'm like, well, because I don't want my witness to be tainted. I don't want you to think less of me. I'm trying to be a billboard for my God, and you have a presupposition of Christianity, and I'm trying to dismantle that and help you unlearn what you think about Christianity and relearn the biblical concepts of God's heart. So then as I built a relationship with one brother who then told me he was an agnostic Buddhist, which I still don't know what that was, and he even told me. I don't even know what it is, bro, but if you got to label me, and I hate labels, I'm an agnostic Buddhist. And I'm like, bet we can work with that. And he was like, you still want to be cool with me? And I'm like, yeah, man. All the more. I don't want to just be cool with you if you're a Christian or not. I need to engage with you and dialogue with you and live life amongst you. So I took him to lunch my last day at work, and I began to think, Lord, give me a creative way to share the gospel with him in a way that he could understand. Because I can't use the, the typical dope dealer analogies or gang analogies that I use in my own neighborhood because he wouldn't understand that. He's not from my environment. So I had to learn the language of his environment. So I sat him down, and I said, hey, I know you're passionate about social justice, as am I. And he said, yeah. I said, man, I got a case study I think I want to introduce you to. He said, for real? I said, yeah, let's talk it over some cheeseburgers at lunch. So we sat down, had some cheeseburgers. Young people know my love affair for cheeseburgers. So we sitting there having cheeseburgers. And I sat there and I said, man, listen, I said, there was a small business started by three family members. And when they went national, they began to recognize there was some issues, man. So the CEO and the CFO and the COO began to work through the nuances of all the corruption that was going on in the company that they had started. And what was happening was the middle level and high level management was oppressing the workers. They were keeping them from knowing what benefits they had access to. They withheld the policy and procedure manual. They were mandating overtime. They were oppressing them by working them and not giving them fair wages. And my dude was like, are you serious? I said, no, 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 listen, listen, it gets worse. And he's like, how could it possibly get worse? I said, well, the CFO recognized Something had to be done. So what he did is he left the penthouse suite and he went and he applied for an entry level position. So this brother went through orientation after he got hired. He went to the floor and he began to be a normal production worker. And through his excellent work ethic, people began to come around him. He aroused the boost of morale amongst people. Product production started going high. And then he began to tell his coworkers, you don't have to work 60 hours a week. We live in a state where you cannot mandate. Your employer cannot mandate overtime without giving you compensation. And they were like, what? We've never heard this. And he introduced them to the policy and procedure manual that they had never seen and he began to share their benefits and he began to say these are privileges for being an employee of this company well middle level management heard about it they started tripping they was like oh we need to get this brother out of here so we know we can't just fire him for no reason so we're going to go to him like we've done to others and we're going to basically make an appeal for him to take a management position to get him away from the other workers because he's spreading this cancer so they went to him and they said, hey, man, you're doing a great job. Your production is on point. We want to give you a promotion. He said, I'm not here to take a promotion. It's more pay. I'm not here for money. Uh, we want you to uh, basically come and sit in this cubicle and you can be the shot caller. It's okay. I don't want that. I don't need that. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I want to see this company thrive the way that its original founders and owners wanted to. And they got upset at him. So they conspired and they got him fired. And when I told my boy that, he was like, is this a legitimate case? I said, bro, this is a real story. I'm not making this up. He said, okay, I got three lawyers. We're going to do a call for action, Better Business Bureau. He was ready to ride or die. And I'm like, okay, put the cell phone down, boy, before you get the news channels out here and everything. We marching and hashtagging it all up. Hold on, bro. I want to tell you something. I said, this is the story of the gospel. And he was like, I'm, come again? I said, yeah, man. I said, the CEO is the father. The CFO is the son. The COO is the Holy Spirit. 
I said what the CFO did is what we call the incarnation. He left the comforts of the crib of heaven and he came to the brokenness of society. And he lived out the policy and procedure manual of perfection, which is God's word. The word that the people that were being oppressed were not privileged to hear because the people that had the word wanted to oppress the people. And I said what he did is he came and he gave his life as a surrender to liberate those who are oppressed, not just spiritually, but physically so they can walk in a newness of life. And I said they didn't conspire to fire him, brother. He surrendered his life so that he could die in the place of sinners. And I sat there and I took a bite of my cheeseburger. And I thought this brother was going to be like, what must I do to be saved? I thought revival was going to fall and the next great awakening was going to happen. Well, it didn't. This brother looked at me and said, ah, you almost got me, boy. Woo, you slick. You snuck the gospel. Oh, that's smart, boy. You need to write a book. But then they came out with the TV show Undercover Boss and there, there went my idea. So I'm like, dang. But I share that for these two reasons. It took me time to learn the language because I had a burden to see my coworkers come to know Jesus. And I didn't know how to share the gospel in a way they could understand linguistically unless I became a learner of their culture, a learner of their language, an appreciator, and I valued those things. And I began to express to them the reality of the gospel. But here's what I want you to understand, my brothers and sisters. Our methods don't save a single soul. Our Messiah does. So even if you give a logical with right premises and right conclusions argument for the gospel, that does not mean people will get saved. See, there is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that we have to fall back and let him do what he does. All we're called to do is be faithful with the message and mobilize with the message to show people that our God actually does care about his creatures. That's what we're called to do. Sow and water and let God bring the increase. And we need to do that not just with the non-believing world, but with the believing world to have diversity amongst our dinner tables, to listen with empathy in order to gain sympathy as we have shared suffering experiences and make deposits in our relationships before we make withdrawals out of people. It's the social capital that we need amongst the body of Christ today that is going to be a model for the world that this is what it looks like to be one united people made up of different aspects of distinctiveness. But in addition, not only were you a chosen race, we're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. Literally, a royal priesthood means that we are fit for a king. We are from a royal bloodline, and that's not because of our doing. That's because of our God's grace. You see, in the old covenant, a king could not serve as a priest. In fact, when Uzziah tried in, in, in uh, First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, he actually was struck with leprosy because he tried to run the lane of a priest when he was a king. And God said there's a separation between those two lanes. But when Jesus Christ, who is the king immortal, incarnated in the flesh, and he is now serving as our perpetual high priest, he has made us to be a kingdom of priests so that we can now go to our king while serving as a priest because we are a part of that royal bloodline, which is derivative right because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. What's amazing about Hebrews chapter 4 is that it tells us we as believers literally have an all-access pass into the very throne room of God. I remember this time I went to a conference in Atlanta, my wife and I, and we were given an all-access pass, and it was at the Georgia Dome, and it was bugged because we're sitting there amongst all these college students going in and worshiping God, and then we were able to go backstage, and we were able to see people that we admire in the faith, and we're sitting there like, yo, this is crazy that we're back here. But what's amazing about that all-access pass is that it had an expiration date on it. You see, the week after, 
when the Falcons played their home opening game, if I would have walked in to that Georgia Dome and said, yo, here's my pass and try to walk through security, I would have been on the news because they thought I was a terrorist or doing something crazy down there at the Georgia Dome. Why? Because those credentials were invalid. They were no good. They expired when that old event expired. It wasn't an all-access pass perpetually to get in and out of the Georgia Dome and go wherever I wanted to because there was a time restriction on it. Such is not the case with the reality, the all-access pass that we have through Jesus Christ into the very throne room of our God. There is no expiration date. You can go to the Father on behalf of those who will never call on the name of Jesus, and you can mention them and beg God to save them, to heal their broken hearts, to bind up their wounds, to bring them into an understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can pray that relationships would be healed amongst the body of Christ. You can even pray that God would give you a greater burden for the lost across the sea and across the street, that you would walk in a missional balance to see the reality of the need for the world to see believers who are living on mission to advance the glory of God. There is no expiration date on your all-excess pass to God if you are in Christ Jesus. So we shouldn't dismiss our calling or discount it by placing our identity in man-made idols, but embrace our identity in Christ. In addition to this, we have to learn that we should not discount our calling. See, we're a holy nation, which means holiness is our national identification. We're being sanctified. We're a people of his own possession. Colossians chapter 1, 13 and 14, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. See, this is the beauty of our God, is that even though we were born outside of the family of God, spiritually, because of the work of Jesus, our identity, when we embraced him, was transformed. The old us is dead and gone, and a new us is alive in Christ. And we are ambassadors to promote his glory. We should never discount that calling. We should never make it cheap. See, he goes on to say, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. The whole reason God has provided us with a new identity was to send us out on a mission to make him famous. Now, a lot of people have misrepresented our God and they've made him infamous. We need to recapture the biblical identity of our God, the heart of compassion, the heart of grace, the heart of mercy, the heart of boldness and courage when it's spirit empowered to proclaim that Jesus is Lord over every square inch of creation. That's what it means to not discount this calling. This word proclaim in the Greek is in the active voice, which means the persons that Peter is talking to, they're the ones that are called to proclaim. The non-believers are not called to proclaim his excellencies because they have yet to partake of his excellencies if they don't know Christ. So it is our responsibility to not be passive, but to be active in communicating with our lips and the things that we do with our hands and our lives that God is on the throne and he is mobilizing his own people to be his marketing plan, his marketing plan of salvation and redemption. We are called to promote the excellencies of him, specifically how he desires to redeem sinners from every nation, tribe, and tongue. See, we were called out of darkness into his marvelous light. And the word called lets us know it was a specific call by name. He called us out of the kingdom of darkness and positioned us in the kingdom of light. See, our call out of darkness is crazy because in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8, it says, for at one time, you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord, therefore walk as children in the light. It didn't say you were in darkness. We personified darkness. 
The reality then is that when we heard the gospel and we were given new life in Christ, now we transitioned wholly out of darkness and totally into light. But now we have to live like we are children of the light. See, as we live as children of the light, we recall that our calling is based on our identity in Jesus. The world views their identity and careers and people, possessions and positions and achievements. And their life is cheapened by the idols that this world offers them. We should not follow their pattern of trajectory. We should not follow their pattern of idolatry and rooting our identity in our home, in our cars, in the things that God may have given us grace to work for and achieve. Those are excellent things, but they should be leveraged for the glory of God, that we would be known for our good works, not just for hoarding material possessions, that we would be leveraging the privileges God has given us so that more people can be empowered to make God known throughout the spheres of society in our day to day. We're not to discount and cheapen our calling. We are Christians before anything else, but that doesn't make the anything else go away. This is why we have to catch our cues that as the world is bickering over racism and classism and sexism, we should be stepping up to show them what the cure for this looks like with the unified body of Christ. That we recognize that yes, in Christ there is no Jew nor Greek, but as I said before, that doesn't mean the ethnicity of the Christian goes away. No, we must refrain from ignoring the ethnic identity of Christians and idolizing it. We can't do both, but we affirm it and say in the city of God, in Revelation chapter 7 verse 9, God's Instagram feed puts us up on game that in heaven we see the visible, distinct nation, tribes, and tongues present. It's a multi-ethnic and multi-generational city, and we must be a reflection of that before the world. We must show that it is a kingdom of men and women who come together to embrace the reality of God. And God is using the kingdom of priests, which includes men and women, to proclaim the excellencies of our God. It doesn't matter your socioeconomic class. It doesn't matter your education. It doesn't matter your sinful orientation before you met Jesus. He says everyone that comes to the cross will be embraced equally as my child and commissioned to go out and make disciples of, in the Greek, panta ta ethne, which means every ethnicity. This is the mission of God. This is the mission of the church. We bring him glory by serving the world as a snapshot of what the final reality looks like so that they would put their trust in the same Jesus, be welcomed into the body of Christ and recognize that they can leverage their ethnicity their gender, their vocational calling, the possessions God has given them grace to have under the lordship of Jesus for his glory. That's what it means. Collectively, we are together on this mission. This is why we cannot dismiss our calling or discount it by placing our identity in man-made idols. Don't cheapen the eternal value of the salvation you've been given by taking your identity away from Christ and putting it something that is man-made Remove that. Ask God to expose the idols of your heart and smash them so that Jesus can be put back on the throne of your heart and you can then surrender all the good gifts that your heavenly father has given you for his glory and then distribute them as he so shares with your heart to do so for the advancing of the gospel, the making of disciples, the supporting of the local church. And then finally, we should not be discontent with this calling. In verse 10, he says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
See, many of Peter's readers were second-class citizens in the Roman Empire. They were a conquered people group. They were basically looked at as, eh, we're going to give you some rights and privileges, but not full citizenship because y'all ain't worthy. And a lot of believers, they feel this way in the body of Christ. And it's sad when society makes them feel second class, but it's challenging when the body of Christ makes them feel second class. These are issues that we have to work through. These are painful things. And it's not just always about ethnicity and class. If I could be candid, sometimes it might be the couple that has been unable to conceive. And they see another couple in the church and they're on their third or fourth child and they're sitting there thinking, why? Why can't we have a baby, Lord? Is it something we've done wrong? And sometimes they feel excluded because they're not coming to the birthday parties. They, they feel that I'm ashamed and, and maybe this miscarriage is God's judgment. And they're wrestling through pain and suffering and affliction. And sometimes that, that woundedness makes them assume that, well, God is blessing them and, and they don't care about us and they feel like a second-class citizen. Sometimes maybe it's our past and the mistakes we've made. Sometimes it's the pain of abortion. Sometimes it's the pain of divorce that we feel that I'm damaged goods and, and, and I can never be vulnerable before the body of Christ because they won't accept me with all the stuff that I have in my life. And I'm here to tell you that when you bring your brokenness to God, he turns it into something beautiful. Amen. Every scar, every moment of suffering, that makes you a qualified agent of grace to speak to other believers, but even non-believers who share the same pain to say, wait a minute, you serve a God that takes you with all of this junk, all of this garbage? Yes, I do. And he's still cleansing me from all of this junk and all of this garbage. I'm still a work in progress. God does not mandate perfection on this side of eternity. But we are working towards being purified because when we step out of this side of eternity to the next, then the struggle for sin will no longer be reality. Then affliction and oppression and prejudice and racism and classism and sexism and the pains of mistakes of our past and the consequences, they will no longer be a reality. So if we know that's where we are headed, why not serve the body and society at large by saying we are imperfect, but we're trying to be the best snapshot of possible of where we're going. That's the mission. See, once he says, once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The condition of those who remain outside of Jesus, they have not experienced the salvific mercy of God. That's the burden that should drive our life's actions. That's the burden. Where are the non-believers gathering? Where are they worshiping the idols that are driving the rhythm of their hearts? Perhaps God is calling us to engage with them in their place of worship. Because it's not always in a mosque. It's not always in a temple. Sometimes it's at the barbershop. Sometimes it's at the grocery store. Sometimes it's at the public park. Everywhere where non-believers are gathered who don't know God and are not worshiping him, that's our mission field. And we as believers must have a burden to see them come to know Christ in such a way that we're seeking to engage with them in ways that we're building relationships and constantly making gospel deposits into their life with our lips and our lives. You know, he says that now we have received mercy. The dividing line between the two groups of people that he's been talking about is the cross. Either people have embraced Christ or they have not. But as I look at the corporate language of our text, this comforts me as I close. You see, he says, the fact of our identity, this is who we, he says who we are. We're a chosen race. What's amazing to me is that's written in the second person plural in the Greek. 
What that means, it's a corporate reality. It's a corporate reality. It's plural, which means in America, this is very hard for us to understand, we're so individualistically driven that we will put our individual preferences before the group benefits. And that is contrary to what we see, especially in the New Testament with over 50 one another's, that we would prefer one another, that we would love one another, receive one another. It's very challenging because when I live life for the advancement of the group, then guess what? My immediate preferences get put on the back burner. And I don't like that because that's very uncomfortable. And the reason it's uncomfortable is because I'm crucifying my flesh. Now, let me be balanced. I'm not saying ignore self-care. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying don't forsake uh, your, your, your personal time with God. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying is don't just have a personal time with God and never engage with the body of Christ. Don't just say, okay, I'm going to get my church on, my praise on, but never engage in accountable relationships and discipleship rhythms. And then at the same time, don't just live in a Christian bubble where you're completely ignorant to the social structures and, and the suffering that's around you and the society around you by the non-believing world, but rather mobilize together. So out of the flow of your personal time with God, it should be then collected together with other believers in your local area who have been spending personal time with God. And as you step out of the bubble and into the non-believing world, together you're mobilizing to let the light of the gospel shine all the more bright in the nooks and crannies of darkness in our society. This is a corporate reality. It's not made for one of us to do it alone. We're a royal priesthood and a holy nation, a people of his own possession. We are the one new man. Our chief cornerstone is Christ. And the job of a cornerstone is to bring two opposing walls into itself in order that the foundation may be laid and the structure can be built. He has brought Jew and Gentile together into him to function as one family, one family. It takes time, it takes grace, it takes patience. It takes being less superficial, more honest, more authentic. Plenty of times where we disagree, but we don't abandon the relationship when we disagree. See, our world is trying to drive a wedge between us politically, socially, ethnically. They keep trying to divide. And what we must say is, man, I'm secure in my walk with Christ. I'm secure in your walk with Christ. And even though we may vote different, even though we may look at economics different, even though we may look at these things different, we can at least come together on common ground to say we both embrace Christ. We're both trying to figure this out. We will not each see perfection until we see Jesus. There is a world of lost people that we need to be engaging with. So there are some things we're just going to have to agree to disagree on, but we got to keep the conversation going so we can keep learning from each other. But at the same time, we must agree on the content of the gospel and the mobilizing of God's people to show the world that God cares and it's through his church that they should find compassion and care. So that's why our calling is to proclaim, proclaim him and his excellencies. The enemy wants us to take our eyes off of the cross and put it on our circumstances. He wants us to be content in where we are in our place of comfort because it's easy. It's literally comfortable. And it's challenging. It's challenging to speak out knowing that you're going to get hit with the world because you're too conservative for the world. But then when you step out, now you're too liberal for the church. 
And there's this tension. And it's like, but I want to see the gospel proclaimed, and I want people to know Jesus. And that's why we need each other to find the balance. We can't do it alone. Pardon the pun, but we're not called to be cowboys. Even though I know it's America's team, we can't all be mavericks, even though I know that's the basketball team. But the reality of it is it's a corporate calling with individuals who surrender their entire life to the lordship of Christ and mobilize together to advance the glory of God by showing the church and the world that his grace and mercy is available. Let's pray. Father, as we have heard for these moments the reality of your scriptures, it's my prayer, Holy Spirit, that you would awaken the hearts that are in this place that may be sleeping. Perhaps those who have never put their trust in Christ. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would allow them to recognize that they are loved by you so much that you would send your son who volunteered to die on behalf of sinners and to resurrect to life so that we could be given life. And I pray for the believers in this place who may be struggling, who may be challenged by what the text says, that they would begin to look at their lives, and myself included, what are the idols that are keeping me from living in full effectiveness of your mission, Lord? What are the things that I'm pursuing comfort in rather than turning to Christ first about? Lord, I pray that you would allow us in community to find a balance in proclaiming the gospel with our lips, but living out the demonstration of the beauty of the truth of the gospel with our lifestyle. I pray that you would guide us and shape us. And as we enter this time of worship, that you would speak to us directly and recalibrate our hearts to the cross, align us with your word. And as we are sent from this place, may we go living on mission for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.